You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to episode 79 of District of Conservation. This is your host. Gabriella Hoffman. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Really excited to have you here. And if you're a returning listener, we are grateful to have you join us every week. Today's special guest is a familiar face on national TV. If you don't already know Town Hall editor and Fox News contributor Katie Pavlich, today you'll become more acquainted with her and her work. You'll get to learn her views on nature, public lands, hunting, firearm, and true conservation. A little backstory on why I brought Katie onto the podcast. She and I have worked in similar circles, and I had the pleasure of meeting her at CPAC in 2012, which is the big conservative political conference held annually in D.C., and we were both in the media room, and from there we built rapport and kept in touch, and I really wanted to share her story uh, with you all from there. And she was always very nice and approachable from the get-go, and she and I have a similar love of the outdoors, and I think uh, her perspective on these issues is something she doesn't really talk about on a regular basis. She does talk about firearms and a little bit about hunting, but I wanted to bring her on to expand from her usual political stuff. And here is a little bit of Katie's biography for you guys to familiarize yourselves with. Katie is an editor for townhall.com and a Fox News contributor, which she joined in 2013. She regularly co-hosts outnumbered on Fox and fills in as a guest host on The Five, The Ingram Angle, and Hannity. As a reporter, she has covered a variety of topics ranging from presidential and congressional elections to the White House, Department of Justice, Second Amendment, border issues, the ISIS genocide of Christians in the Middle East, and more. She is an award-winning author of Assault and Flattery, The Truth About the Left and Their War on Women, and the New York Times bestseller, Fast and Furious, Barack Obama's Bloodiest Scandal and Its Shameless Cover-Up. In 2015, Katie hosted Outdoor Channel's first documentary, Safe Haven, Gun-Free Zones in America. And she's also been interviewed for the History Channel's America's Book of Secret series. She grew up in the mountains of northern Arizona, rafting the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon and hunting big game with her father in the forests and deserts that Barry Goldwater called home. In her spare time, she enjoys traveling, spending time with her dog, her husband, friends, family, and the great outdoors. And she has claimed that she has been to... 43 of 50 U.S. states and four of seven continents. Here is my interview with best-selling author and Fox News contributor Katie Pavlich. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Katie. Really excited to have you on and share your thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I know that we tried to do this earlier, like I think late last year, and I, of course, had to reschedule. So I really appreciate you being flexible and having me on now. Absolutely. I'm more than happy to accommodate because you are a very busy woman. So, and I'm the same way, so I, I totally understand, but it's better late than never, as they say. True. I wanted to first ask you, for those who are not familiar with your work, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about how you decided to become a journalist? Yeah, so um, I work for Town Hall Media through townhall.com, and um, we have a great team over there. Um, so I help run that, and then I'm a contributor at Vox, and I've written two books. Um, 
and I decided to get into journalism um, when I was in college. I thought I wanted to be a sports journalist. And then I went to a Young America's Foundation conference and realized, obviously, politics and political journalism is where I should be um, and switched over to broadcast journalism. And then right after college, I moved to D.C. from Arizona and really just dove in with, you know, head first and did as much as I possibly could and worked really hard all the time and took advantage of every opportunity that came my way. And um I've been able to work with a lot of really awesome people. I love my team at Town Hall. Um, so that's really how I kind of got into it. Yeah, you're all over the place. You're on many Fox programs. You have traveled with the State Department. You've gone on a lot of reporting trips. So you're you're very plugged into to stuff. And, and do you consider yourself a journalist? Do you like focusing on certain topics? Guns are certainly one one issue you focus on. But you've, you've kind of focused on a plethora of issues. Yeah, no, I, I definitely consider myself a, a journalist and a reporter. Um, I'm open about the fact that I come at the issues um, from a conservative perspective, which I think is more honest than a lot of most uh, people in media approach their work. Um, but you're right. I've, I've gone on a couple trips with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I've done reporting from the White House briefing room. I'm technically part of the White House uh uh, Correspondence Association. Um, I've written a lot about the Second Amendment, which, of course, is something that's also very personal to me. Um, I've done a documentary on the border. I've done a documentary on gun-free zones. Um, and then, of course, you know, all the things that are Washington, D.C.-based, um, Justice Department issues, things that are happening on Capitol Hill. So definitely a broad um you know, swath of issues, but, um, there are some more than others that I'm more passionate about, obviously. Understood. That's very good to know. And you, in your background, obviously people who know you quite well, uh, understood and, and have gotten to know that you've kind of been embedded in the great outdoors since you were young. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that your family introduced you to it? Your dad was a big influence on you. How did you get interested in, uh, guns and, and hunting? Well, first, I mean, I was born into it because we lived out in the middle of, I guess, the middle of nowhere, you would say, um, on five acres and in in Arizona and Flagstaff. And our closest neighbor was like pretty far away. So I grew up in an outdoor environment. um, And my dad's like a huge outdoorsman. Um, He's been a hunter safety education instructor for three decades. Um, I grew up camping. Like we spent our summer vacations in Colorado camping. Um, So it was, it was just a family affair. Like being outside is just part of who we are. And it really is like part of our soul. And we just believe that the earth has, you know, a meaning to all of us. And it's really a, a healing thing that we should take care of. And, um, it, I just quite literally just like grew up in it, you know, it was like outside I didn't have TV until I was like in middle school I and mean, we had a television, but it only had like two channels. So oh we just were outside all the time. Um, all of our chores were outside. Like we had, we raised Labrador retrievers and they weren't like indoor dogs. They were outdoor dogs. So we were outside with them a lot and we would build forts and, go hiking and, you know, Flagstaff, you have the San Francisco peaks. And, um, the great thing about where I grew up is we would take field trips to the Grand Canyon and hike the Grand Canyon. And so it just really was part of like everyday life for me. Um, and it's something that I really, really miss being on the East coast, even though I've been here for almost a decade now, I really haven't adjusted to (laughs) the difference in how you can get outside. Um, and so, 
it's just, it's just a different way of, of living. Um, and it's a little bit easier to do when you're out West. That's very true. I miss that about California, fellow mm-hmm. Westie, fellow Westie as well. Yeah, West coast, but, West coast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I mean, although I think we wish for some States that it was under better management, makes me sad to see California in its current state, but it did have very beautiful natural settings and national parks. So I totally feel the same way, but there are some opportunities out here. There's Shenandoah and yeah. you've, you've kind of navigated a little bit of the outdoor terrain when you're not working, you like to go out in nature too here when you try to find some free yeah, time. Definitely. Um, and there's, you know, they've done a really good job. I love, I think Virginia is an absolutely beautiful state. It's just a different adjustment when out West, there's a lot of federal land that you can just access freely. Whereas I think here, if you don't own private property, uh, like a farm or something, you have to go to a national park. You can't just kind of go cruise around. Um, so they, I, I missed that. Like when I was in Arizona, I could just like, get out on the land within like 15 minutes. Whereas here it's kind of like a fight to get there. Like you have to plan it and you have to drive through traffic and then you have to pay a park fee and then you get to the national park and there's all these restrictions on camping and where you can and cannot go. And so it's just a different adjustment, but you're absolutely right. The Shenandoah Valley is gorgeous. Um, and, you know, DC has some interest, some beautiful parks too, um, that you can go and actually they have horseback riding down in Rock Creek park, which I didn't even yeah. realize until a year ago. Um, so, you know, I, I try not to compare the two places because each one has such a different and beautiful opportunities and uniqueness to it. So it's not that Virginia is not as good. It's just a different adjustment that I haven't quite, haven't quite adjusted to yet. So. <laughs> There's so much to discover too, because you could get lost and so consumed with wanting to explore things in Maryland because Maryland has a lot of natural beauty to it too, especially the coastline, the Chesapeake Bay. Like you're always discovering new places. That's the problem for me. I'm like, I can't decide where to go because so much is enticing, but this whole metro area is actually surprisingly really naturalistic if you get outside DC. So I try to tell people that too, but you know, there's a lot of boating here, which is something that I'm used to in Arizona. Like you can get out in the water so it's, it has a lot, a lot of stuff to offer. So I need to take advantage of it more. <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to do that now that we have these social distancing practices in place? Have you found time to at least go for walks or check out some nearby parks? Yeah, going for walks. We have a dog. So, um, five-year-old English lab. So he likes to go for walks. Um, but actually we've, I've thank God been very busy with all the news happening. Um, so we haven't been able to get out much, but, um, definitely as the weather gets warmer, um, and hopefully that once they open up the Shenandoah National Park, we can get out and do some camping. It's a good goal to have. I kind of want to talk a little bit about politics. You and I have uh, been in similar circles. I think I first met you about eight years ago when I was just finishing college. And you've always been very gracious and very approachable. And something I think that's also been brewing on your mind, too, as it relates to politics, is you probably hear that conservatives aren't conservationists. And I started this podcast about a year and a half ago to kind of demystify that without necessarily bringing the political discussion into it, but kind of explaining kind of in a center right conservative view as to what our views are on nature, guns, conservation, things of that sort. But do you think that conservatives can be conservationists? Are the misconceptions wielded towards conservatives ways accurate? And do you have any thoughts on kind of how we can tackle the energy issue? Cause yeah, that's something that so, has been. Um, yeah, definitely. So conservatives can be conservationists. Obviously you and I are exact products of that and good examples of that. Um, I think this is where language kind of, um, 
really matters because I think that conservatives often get accused of not caring about the environment just because they don't believe in big government solutions or global solutions, um, which I don't even think are solutions in the first place, to solving localized uh, or American issues when it comes to true conservation. So as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know because you've probably said this on the podcast before, but hunters are the largest conservationists in America, and they are crucial to um, keeping the majority of our public lands um, clean and properly managed. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've written about a lot is actually the forest fire issue. And if you look at the way that environmentalism has really taken over public policy rather than uh, free market conservation policies, um, we've actually created a lot of these problems ourselves through big government one-size-fits-all solutions and not thinking about long-term consequences of things like the Endangered Species Act, for example. Um, So if you look at the 1970s and 1980s before the um, Endangered Species Act was put into place, we didn't really have these widespread 100,000 acre crown forest fires out west because there was multiple multiple use of the land, um, which means that ranchers and farmers were allowed to have their cattle graze or their animals graze, or you could have private industry come in and kind of clear out all of the debris um, and make a profit doing that in a, in a, um, a regulated way. But now, because of all these rules, um, private industry isn't involved and the federal government has been properly maintaining the forests. And so now we have these massive forest fires that then destroy anything, everything anyway. Um, so I think taking a hard look at how these environmental policies have been enacted and how these um, really extreme viewpoints on the environment have been taken. And if you don't believe in them, you're somehow seen as a denier or someone who doesn't care about the environment when there are, you know, tens of thousands of people just like you and me who believe in the environment and protecting the earth and um, doing our part not to pollute and to clean up after ourselves and to pres- and to conserve um, large portions of our country so that our future generations can enjoy them. Um, that's a conversation they tried to shut us out of, and it's important for us to get back into that conversation with sound policies um, that we've had implemented before that have completely been written off But really looking at like the consequences of what has been put in place, I think, is really important. Um, And in terms of energy, I do think that there have to be lines drawn. Like, I don't want drilling in the Grand Canyon, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't know anyone who wants that. (laughs) Draw for in terms of profit. Right. Like, yeah, there are certain people who are in the business community who do want to go into places like that and justify making moves like that because it, it provides, um, you know, jobs and an industry. Um, but I, I do believe that we have to protect um, some of those places. But I think the way that you go about it um, is important. And if you do things like make things national monuments, well, then it severely limits actually the people who live in those places, their ability to actually go out and enjoy the land. So there's a big difference between conservation and preservation. Uh, we are conservationists. We are not environmentalists. Um, which means we care about the environment, but we also believe that we should be able to access it. So, you know, there is a balance of what you can do. And I I think that the private industry um, can really help the federal government in a lot of ways to keep um, caring for our national parks and our forests, especially out west. 
Those are all very, very good points. Have you followed much what the Trump administration is doing on this uh, front in the Department of Interior? And how would you rate how they're doing in terms of implementing a true conservationist agenda? Yeah, so I think they've done an excellent job of kind of pulling back the definitions of what the national monuments mean. I know that I think it was either this week or last week. It's been hard to keep track with everything going on. Um, They've expanded more access to federal lands to um, people for hunting and fishing. And that goes back to what I was saying about multiple use, Um, because when you engage people who want to take care of something and take ownership of something, they're more likely to treat it well and, and clean up after themselves Um, So I think that they've done a really good job of kind of pushing aside some of these arguments about, well, if you don't believe in doing it in a big government far left way, then you don't care about the environment. Um, That's not true. I know the Trump administration has really tried to bring together people from those sectors and get their advice directly. I think they had a commission. You're probably more familiar. You may actually may even be on it, actually, of, you know, listening to people who spend a lot of time outdoors and on the land and listen to them about the problems that they encounter and how to fix them. And um, President Trump has talked a lot of it about the forestation issue and how they haven't been managed properly. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of work to do on that, especially because the Endangered Species Act has so much power. Um, and that's also a very emotional issue because it's like, well, it's an endangered animal. Like, why would you want to take back the Endangered Species Act, right? Um, and that doesn't mean just because you want changes to it doesn't mean you want it to be completely eliminated. Um, there are halfway points. Um, PERC has been a really good advocate of private solutions to these problems. Um, and I think the Trump administration has taken a lot of kind of their policy ideas on private public partnerships with the environment and and implemented them. Um, the administration has also done a really good job of giving people back their rights when it comes to the EPA and the previous administration, you know, suing private property owners because they had a wetland on their property and they tried to build something. You know, it just gets so out of control, um, which is all it's, it's really about control. So I think they've done a, a really good job of kind of getting back to some common sense about how to go about these issues. They certainly have. And I've tried to present that in a fair manner here, just because I listen to some other conservation type podcasts and I just hear constant like negativity or misinterpretation of their agenda. And I'm not trying to be a spokesperson for the administration. I like to operate independently, although I do agree with much of what they're doing, but it's like so much, so much of it that they present, I feel and, and the hunting sector is getting a lot more divided, unfortunately, on political lines. But a lot of people don't just present the facts. So I try to highlight that there. But they certainly have done a lot, um, surprised me, in fact, in many ways in terms of trying to advance that agenda. But I'm glad you recognize that, too, as well. I think you even joked on an episode of Triggered not too long ago I was watching. And you said, I think if you could in the future, you would love to be Interior Secretary. Would that be something, would that be something you'd ever contemplate? Of that, that would be amazing. That would be so great. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great too. Yeah. No, my grandpa. So back to the beginning of what we were talking about was my grandfather, who I never got to meet. Um, but he was a park ranger in the summertime in Yellowstone. And my dad tells all of these amazing stories about how they would spend the summers up in Wyoming. And my my grandpa's job as a park ranger was to catch bears, you know, that were problem bears in campsites. And they would take them and, you know, dump them in some other part of the park away from all of the people. Um, So I have this letter from my grandmother to my great aunt, who was my grandpa's sister, who I did know. And she was writing on June 30th and it had its Yellowstone um, National Park stationery from like 19... 
60s, maybe. I should find it. It's somewhere. Uh, and she's complaining about how there's a blizzard on June 30th in Yellowstone and how to <laughs> find all of their plans. And so it just is something that I, you know, I really connect with on so many different levels and part of my family. So yeah, interior secretary wouldn't be, wouldn't be a bad gig. <laughs> yeah. If, if you had to forego during journalism and working for Fox news, that's not a bad gig. Yeah, I would take and it. If we had more conservative presidents, perhaps that could happen and become a reality. Yeah, no, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. No, I just think that we need, um, as you were saying, true conservationists who believe in, um, protecting what we have who aren't dedicated to a far left agenda when it comes to the environment and the climate. I mean, there's, it's just not, they, everybody acts like there's this consensus about how to handle this issue. And if you're not on board, you're like a flat earther. And that's just, there, that's just not true. There are so many people who have uh, really interesting solution oriented perspectives on how to manage the environment in a way that is friendly towards the environment towards the animals that live in it and also friendly towards people who want to um, enjoy it, but also protect it. And so I think that having someone in those kinds of positions with that perspective is pretty important and people who have lived in it, like a lot of the time um, people who, and that documentary called not evil, just wrong by Anne McElhenney and um, Phelan McAleer is a really good example of this. It's a counter to Al Gore's an inconvenient truth is a lot of the time the people who are running environmental policies that affect all of us are living in big cities like New York or Washington, D.C., and they've never actually lived out in the environment. Like they didn't grow up in a place where, you know, they hauled their own wood and their own water and, you know, had to hunt for their food. Like they don't understand really how it works, but yet they're developing these policies that are not just frustrating for people who want to enjoy the environment, but damaging because they don't actually get implemented the right way or there are one size fits all, all policies that don't actually work for Arizona, but they might work for Alaska or Colorado. Right. So I think that having people who have a real background in the outdoors in those positions is really important. It is, especially for stakeholder relations. And you see this with lawsuits. Um, I've been following the whole grizzly bear situation. The gray wolf thing is something we have to look out for. And you right. see a lot of those people, do not live side by side these animals, which the people there do love and respect, but they realize that they have to be managed in a way once they become delisted. And you have these people from New York, from Center for Biological Diversity mm-hmm. and all these different types of en- entities just trying to serially lit- litigate against farmers and individuals in different states and make it more complicated for people to live out their lifestyle and actually have good management systems in place. Right. And they don't understand management at all. Uh, and they, they make it a very emotional, humane society type issue. Um, they don't see it as a, you know, a, a, food, a food chain issue of humans being the ones who need to manage the environment. Um, we've seen a lot of this happen in New Jersey, actually. And maybe you've talked about this um, with the bear population. They banned bear hunting in New Jersey yep. and now they have a massive bear population problem. Um, the same thing is going on in California with the mountain lions. I mean, this is what happens when you don't allow humans to properly manage um, something and make animals valuable um, in a way that there can be a reciprocal relationship that's a healthy one. Um, Too many overpopulation of animals, uh, especially violent predators, is a problem. Um, But it's also a problem if, you know, there's not enough of them. So there is a role that humans can play, but it has to be the right balance. And it can't just be an emotional one based on anti-hunter philosophy. 
Absolutely. I wanted to ask you briefly about hunting more before we dip into guns, uh, but do you have a preference of species you like to target and yeah. talk about talk talk about your experience with silencer co you did a really cool video with them a few years ago and i loved seeing that when that first came out but talk about the, uh, those two concepts briefly for for the audience yeah so um i started getting into hunting with my dad when i was um, a kid and it was really funny because he was so excited that I was finally legal age to go. And I was, I was legal age in Arizona is 10, but I my because of my birthday is late. I didn't get to go until I was 11. And he put me in for elk and deer in two units that were five, six hours away from each other on the same weekend. And I got drawn for both. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up going uh, and doing both and were successful in both. And I was on the front of the newspaper and it was just so great. But in terms of um, like my, dream hunt i would love to go to africa and shoot a massive crocodile so i can make my own boots and a purse that's like my ultimate goal um but more locally i'd like to get into like more deer hunting in virginia i did a deer hunt in maryland a couple years ago um, with shotguns and that was really a new experience for me because i'd never hunted deer with a shotgun before um and then I did do that hunt with Silencer Co. It was a whitetail hunt down in Texas with my dad. And it was just, it was a totally different style of hunting um, on a ranch in blinds, but it was amazing. And um, it was, it was like, it was so cold one day though, that I, it was like the coldest I've ever been. Um, <laughs> but it was just so fun. And like going back to the lodge and Silencer Co. is just such a great company. And it was my first time hunting with silencers and it really does make a big difference um, because of the ear protection issue. So it was great. And, you know, it was always fun to share that experience with my dad. Yeah, I think that was the crux of the the video that you got to share that experience with your father. So yeah. that's really awesome. And you, did you know that you can actually harvest crocodiles or alligators more domestically? There's actually a huge problem of them in Louisiana and yeah. in Florida. So you could save yourself a lot of money. And that's, do true. It there. that's true. <laughs> I, I should get down to Florida or Louisiana. You're absolutely right. You got to you got to get like four of them to do what I want to do, though, to to get the size of an African croc. But oh. it is a much easier prospect. So that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the crocodiles and alligators have to be really accurate. Yeah. And it's actually, I I went to a Brazilian restaurant in DC and I actually got to eat some fried crocodile or gator. I forget what it was. It was actually really good. I normally don't like eating reptiles, but it was quite delicious too. So you could also try to fry them or do something (laughs) with them as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So the issue of firearms, Uh, you've noticed obviously, and I, I think you've written about this too recently, that more and more people are purchasing firearms in wake of this virus. And I think even before then in Virginia, a lot of people were stockpiling and kind of buying them in mass because of the response to the gun control policies here in Virginia. And I think kind of nationally, but what's your kind of sentiments on that and why people are doing that. And if gun control is still an issue to worry about, let's say going into the 2020 election. Yeah. Well, I think gun control is always an issue to worry about all the time. It's kind of like putting your finger in a dam or, you know, in a, um, you got to constantly be fighting back because it's not about gun control. It's about control. And as we've seen with a lot of these stay at home orders, um, a lot of politicians love the fact that they can just take over more control of the lives of everyday Americans. Um, but in terms of the argument, I find it really interesting that you're hearing these stories out of California about how, you know, liberals who are now realizing like, oh my gosh, we're in a pandemic, anything could happen, I want to defend myself, like how do I go buy a gun? 
and they think that they can order one online. So they get online <laughs> and like they're frustrated because they can't just order a gun to their door like they've been lied to about. Or they go to the gun store and they're frustrated because there's a 10 day waiting period or they can't buy as much ammunition as they want to. So I think for now, the gun control argument has certainly um, been beaten back just by the reality of life. And we see this often um, when these crises happen. So, for example, after the Boston bombing, when one of the Boston bombers or the Boston bombers were on loose in uh, Boston, they did a poll about and it's a very pro gun control state, as you know. They did a poll about whether people felt like they you know, wanted to be armed when that was happening, and they said yes. <laughs> so people's perspective changes a lot when it comes down to it being like a personal issue and them realizing like nobody is going to defend me, and I have to defend myself, and that's what it's going to come down to ultimately. And the police have, you know, may not have the ability to come, but they also don't have the obligation to, to protect you from a violent situation. Um, so I think for the, the short term, the gun control arguments seem pretty silly to most people with common sense who are going through a very, and we're all going through it, this pandemic, which affects everybody. It really makes you think about what you would do and how you're going to survive. Um, but as you've seen in Virginia, where you and I live, gun control policies have gone, have now been signed into law or put into law by default because they went through a certain period of time and it just automatically becomes law, meaning one handgun a month. Um, If you want to loan your firearm to someone else, you can't do that. They have to go through a background check first, even in a crisis. So um, I think that's an example of how you always have to have your eye on the ball. But overall, generally, the argument, I think (laughs) I think it looks pretty silly to tell people that they don't need something um, when they're sitting in their homes thinking about you know, civil unrest and what could come next and not knowing what's going to happen. That's true. And when it becomes personal, as a lot of people who are kind of unconventional gun owners are realizing now, when it push comes to shove and you need to protect yourself and you have restrictions and obstacles to do so, you may reconsider your previous positions on firearms ownership. And we see a lot of people doing that, it seems. Yeah. And as you said, the personal issue, you know, maybe before they thought that they should be controlling what other people need. But then once they're in the position of needing something, they don't want someone doing it for them. And that certainly changes their perspective. And you asked about the 2020 election, you know, Joe Biden um, has always been anti-gun, but now he's really anti-gun and is for gun confiscation and wants, you know, Beto O'Rourke to be in charge of that, which is going door to door to take people's firearms. So, it's certainly something that I'm sure the Trump campaign will be using as we get closer to the election. Certainly. And an argument I wish that our side could make a little better. I try to write about this and put these two together, but people forget that anytime gun control is enacted, there's a huge diminishment. There's a correlation of loss in conservation funding because of Pittman-Robertson Act and how it's all tied together through that. And uh, it, because certain governors are limiting access for people to go hunting and fishing mm-hmm. and, and surveilling the access, a lot of people I've seen in the hunting industry have said that we're going to actually lose a lot of conservation funding because people are not buying licenses or they're not going outdoors. Yeah. And especially with the gun control issue, an argument I hope people in our political sector would make more is that you're going to see this. And I I don't know how to quantify it in terms of number of dollars lost, but it'd be good to put a number Mm -hmm. uh, as to how much money potentially could be lost in each state or federally 
um, for conservation funding, because as you had mentioned earlier, hunters play a big role and, and all those firearms and ammunition and, and licenses pay a huge chunk of that sum of money. Right. And you think that um, governors would be concerned about that. And I think ones who are, you know, have some common sense and are reasonable would think that. But then there's others who are very far left who are, are fine with that happening because they would prefer that the money be government controlled or that it come through far left environmental groups rather than individuals at a grassroots level. Right. So because it's a power issue because they see that as having more power for them to do what they want. Um, but you're right. I mean, the Shenandoah National Park is shut down now. And you'd think that the best thing for people to do while they're in quarantine all week is to go be outside, but they're making it even more difficult for people to do that, which is crazy. Yeah, I, I don't, I think because they're under the purview of National Park Service, it may have been a federal thing, but I think they have, the state has closed a lot of parks down, like where I live in Northern Virginia, just uh, in a little outside of Old Town Alexandria. I can't even go to certain state parks, which are close to my right. house so or like, county parks. What are we going to do? You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's good to have walking trails. I'm very lucky in that respect. But uh, yeah, it's they even have closed like some county parks too. I think which is a little excessive if they're not really uh, traversed by people. But uh, what can we do, unfortunately, in that respect? But I kind of wanted to ask you, actually, independent of your journalism work and your work with Fox News, you do a little bit of work with Black Rifle Coffee Company, Volkortsen Arms, and some other companies. Care to share a little bit about that and, and why you like yeah, working with so those companies? Um, ambassador work for them. Volcourts and Firearms is an awesome company based out of Iowa. It's a family-run business, um, and they make amazing um, 22 um, long rifles and handguns. They do a lot of like competition sponsorship, and they also make firearms for other companies like Ruger. Um, and I was able to go out there in um, last fall to Iowa to meet the family, and they're just amazing. So um, it's a really good gun to teach new people with. Um, so whenever I have the opportunity to bring someone to the range, Volkortsen is a great way to get them started because it's a 22. It's easy. It's fun. Um, it's easy to handle. And they make really beautiful, well-made um, firearms, and they're all custom. So you can do you know what you want with them. Um, and then for Black Rifle, it's a veteran-owned company. Um, uh, the founder of the company started making coffee, I believe, when he was deployed in Iraq and then came back and made it this awesome business. And they've, they're based in Salt Lake City and they have, a, I think, a um, place in Tennessee. And they make really good coffee and they give a portion of all their proceeds to law enforcement and veterans organizations. And during this uh, pandemic, they also donated a bunch of coffee to frontline medical workers. So good company with good people behind it. And also they get involved with a lot of pro America causes and they're unapologetically American, which I really appreciate because so many companies are not. They make really good coffee. They and do. I have, yeah. And uh, they're, they're very creative. It's a more masculine brand for sure. So when I saw that they brought you on, I was like, okay, good. They're adding a little bit more of a feminine flair <laughs> to it too. I mean, it's great, you know, uh, no problem with kind of the masculine bent to it, but it's kind of nice that they're branching out and incorporating more women like yourselves to come on and, and showcase that. See, it's Thanks, not just yeah, for military guys. Like, they're always like, do awesome things. I'm like, but you guys are so awesome. How am I supposed to keep up with you? They're <laughs> 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 oh, great. Yeah, they, they, they've certainly grown a lot. Like they've, 
I think they also have like a coffee shop in Savannah, Georgia, if I'm not mistaken. They have like different outposts all over the country. And I think they had said at one point they want to kind of rival Starbucks in opening uh, shops and stores like on different corners across yeah. the country, which yeah. would be very, very cool to see. With a, a canned coffee that they're going to start selling in uh, grocery stores and convenience nice. stores. Really cool. So that's great. That's awesome. Very, very cool. In yeah. terms of yeah, in terms of journalism, I wanted to ask you kind of back to the gun issue. Uh, many of us have talked about how people in our media profession don't like to take the time to study the issue and learn about it. Do you still see that as kind of a problem today, especially in wake of all this different news or just in general that they kind of have a dereliction of duty to report accurately about stuff? But what do you kind of surmise from what you see from interacting with journalists or just the reporting you see in terms of how inadequate they do of a job in covering that issue fairly. Yeah. So the reason this, you know, I have a degree in broadcast journalism. I went to journalism school. The rule was if you got a single person's name wrong, if it was misspelled by a letter that was even clearly just a typo, you failed the assignment. And that's how serious they were about factual information and fact checking and making sure everything was correct. And with the gun issue, a lot of these journalists are advocates, you know, posing as journalists. They're not open about the fact that they're personally anti-firearm or they're not familiar with it or they're uncomfortable with it and they would prefer there be more gun control. Um, but the most important thing is that they're ignorant. And when they're writing, quote, factual stories about the issue, they constantly get basic things wrong like using terms like assault rifle, for example, without defining what that means, because it doesn't really actually have a definition. It's a political um, phrase that was developed in the 1990s. Um, and they're talking about very specific terms, but then when you call them out on what those terms mean or try to explain to them that there's a difference between a clip in a magazine or a difference between a 10-round magazine and a 30-round magazine or the difference between or not difference between an AR-15 or a standard hunting rifle and the way they function, they'll say, well, you can harp all you want on, you know, the process and definitions, but we're talking about lives here. And it's like, well, we're talking about laws here that you're writing about. And if we're going to have language in legislation that you're writing about that changes someone from a, a law abiding citizen to a felon, the language really, really matters. And so I think that's the most frustrating part about it. And then also, you know, they think that if you have any kind of background in firearms, like if you're an experienced person who grew up with them, that somehow you have a bias. And it's like, no, I just know what I'm talking about. unlike you. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I do think that that's a huge problem, especially when you're talking about overnight, like putting people in prison for having the wrong size magazine. Yeah, they, they certainly uh, deliberately, I should say, uh, misconstrue what all that terminology is. And then they beg of us to be accurate about certain things, whether it's technology or digital services or something. And they don't have that same respect when covering this issue, which is very technical. It has a lot of consequences. And the people who do work in the hunting or hunting and firearms industry, as we know, are not just bloodthirsty killers who just market products and their sole bottom line is to make money from marketing deadly weapons. That's the entire opposite. 
Well, and I always thought that like someone like Stephen Gutowski, who's really good at writing about this stuff, yes. you know how there's an AP style book for writing uh, in journalism? I, I feel like he should write a style book for firearms terms for journalists because it's something that, you know, that they should be teaching in journalism school because these news stories happen and they don't have any idea what they're talking about. And then there's a demonization of millions of people who happen to own a certain kind of firearm, but the people who are doing the demonizing don't know anything about them or about the firearm um, or even about the process of how firearms are obtained. That goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Like all these lies that are told about how you can get a firearm, like people think that you can just get one shipped to your door. Um, or a drive-through window. <laughs> right, or a drive-through window. So I, I think that the inaccuracies – there's a lot of inaccuracy in media, but I think especially when it comes to the gun issue, there's just so much ignorance and a refusal to learn because they're actually advocates, not just journalists. That's sadly true. And there should be a higher standard demanded of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you, what tips do you have for people who are interested to either pick up firearms or go hunting? Uh, drawing from your life experiences, what would you recommend to someone who's new to either of those and how to take up those hobbies? Yeah, you know, I think um, education is everything. I, I don't necessarily think that you you know have to like in an emergency. I think that this argument that you, know, you have to be well trained is not helpful to people. Um I think that you can be a responsible gun owner without having to go through like hours and hours and hours of extensive training. If you learn the basic concepts of gun safety, which there are basic rules that are easy to learn. Um, but generally if you want to become a more responsible gun owner or a hunter, I would take a class where you don't actually handle firearms. Um, what I liked about the Virginia concealed carry class is that it, we didn't handle firearms at all. It was all just about, um, the instructor showing us on a blue gun what was, you know, how to handle a firearm and the basic concepts. And I took that class to someone who's a lot of experience, and I found it very helpful if I were to be a beginner. And then I would say go with someone who you trust and who is patient and who's going to actually show you how to shoot a firearm in a, in a comfortable and safe environment. So, like, if you can take someone, go outside for your first shooting experience rather than being in an indoor range, I highly recommend that. Um, I find indoor ranges can be very intimidating, especially if it's your first time. It's very loud. It's confined. It's hard to hear. Whereas in an outdoor range, you can kind of move around a little bit. You can ask questions. Um, you have a little more space between you and the other shooters so you can talk. Um, and then in terms of hunting, definitely take a hunter safety course. Understand what kind of animal you're interested in hunting, what the rules and regulations are, what you need to do for your license, um, what kind of firearm you're allowed to use. So there's always a new learning experience. Like I said, I did a whitetail hunt in Maryland a couple of years ago, and I didn't even know that you could hunt a, a whitetail deer with a, a shotgun slug. Like that was a totally new concept to me. Um, so just being aware of your surroundings when it comes to hunting, there's a lot of rules that you need to learn about whether you're, you know, you're not allowed to shoot across the road. Um, what are the rules about tree stands versus putting up a blind? You know, there's, there are things to learn. So definitely taking classes beforehand are very helpful and asking questions. Good, solid piece of advice. I wanted to ask you, when we get the restriction from leaving our houses lifted on June 10th, if we're lucky, yeah. <laughs> what outdoor adventures do you, your husband and Gadsden have planned or you and your friends have planned? Do you have anything in mind that you're planning to do? Um, definitely want to get camping. I was, we were supposed to go to Arizona in, um, at the end of March and that plan got canceled. So getting back to Arizona, getting back outside, going shooting with my dad, um, 
you know, driving around Arizona is definitely on the list. And like I said, out there, you can really just be in the outdoors within a couple of minutes. So looking forward to that. Uh, so we'll have to fly there and get to do that. Um, do you want to do some fishing as well? So yes, the parks open a little up a little bit. Hopefully we can get back to some fishing. Um, so yeah, that's the plan. Very good. And do you have any final thoughts you wanted to add where people can connect with you and anything, any cool projects you may have on hand that people should be aware of? Yeah. So you can connect with me on uh, Twitter, uh, which is more political and Instagram is more like my dog. Um, you can find my writings and reporting every day at townhall.com. You can catch me on Fox. And for now, the special project is really just covering the pandemic. So nothing super interesting happening at the moment. Um, but I appreciate you asking and thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Of course. It was always, it's always good to hear from you, Katie. I am really grateful that you got to come on in and chat. If you enjoyed our interview with Katie Pavlich, please leave us five-star reviews on Apple podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss an episode or monologue. You can find us on virtually every podcast platform out there. You can find us on anchor.fm and it'll direct you to the 11 or so podcasts we are currently on. And we're also on platforms like iHeartRadio and many, many more that are not featured there. Feel free to leave your thoughts, share the podcast episode. And if you have any comments or feedback, we appreciate them. And I would love to know your thoughts. Send any guest suggestions, and I'll be sure to consider them. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to follow us on social media. Connect with us. Download past episodes. Leave us reviews. Those help us go a long way in climbing the wilderness podcast charts. And we'll do our best to stay up to date with the latest happenings from Washington, D.C. and around the country. Thank you for listening. Have a good week.